When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is unbelievable. College basketball. Incredible. You know they're going to find a lot of backdoor play if they can get it. Under 10. Backdoor. Goes out. Here's Davis. Davis for the win. He's got it. Princeton is going to the NCAA tournament. There are very few people who have had as interesting a life with as wide a variety of experiences as John McPhee, a contributor to The New Yorker in 1963. He's written over 100 pieces for the magazine, author of 28 books, four-time Pulitzer Prize finalist, winning the award the fourth time for Annals of the Former World for general nonfiction, a teacher, explorer, a mentor to students and authors, and an interesting storyteller, but you can hear all of that here. John, I'd like to get started if we can. Um, you, know, you know, obviously, with you know, so many of us that know you very well, obviously, uh, have, know your writing. But um, you know, first, you were the son of a physician, the Princeton Athletic Department physician, and also, I think your father was a physician to the U.S. Olympic team. Right. Uh, <clears throat> tell me about what it was like growing up in Princeton. You, I grew up on the Princeton campus, really, because my my dad was was uh, a doctor for the uh, sports medicine was his thing before that term was came into use and so you know I'm, on my bicycle I was on the campus every day and I was in the gym all winter long and around the various sports so that's that's what it was like growing up here I would um, I went to the public schools the school that's now 185 Nassau Street where creative writing has been and so on. It was my elementary school. And, and where is that, actually? One, 185 Nassau is in, uh, well, <laughs> it's, a, it's a university building. It's in the campus. It's, it's, uh, um, and it's right across the street, sort of like near Thomas Suites. It's next door to Thomas yeah, Suites. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, and wh what was, um, you, you mentioned, you know, your, your father being very active, obviously, in, in the community, but what, how did that impact you, you know, as you got closer to, um, you know, you, you got exposed to the university at a young age? Oh, yes. But it, it was, um, well, it was mostly the athletes. That where the EQUAD is now was University Field, where football practiced in the fall, baseball played in the spring, and my school was right up the street, and I would run down there after soccer practice or something at the school and hang around the football players, hang around the baseball players, and in the winter in, over in University Gym, which is where Dylan is now, uh, the basketball players. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, did you have a sense uh, at a young age, you know, uh, going to Princeton High School that, you know, you, you, uh, you wanted to go to Princeton? 
I never applied to another school. I, I, one of my friends whose father was an economics professor said, we might as well go there. It's a good school. <laughs> and, and I just made one application. I spent a PG year at Deerfield because my mother thought I was immature and should go out of town. But I had been admitted to Princeton before I left. The, uh, you, you mentioned, you know, sort of the influence of your parents here a little bit. You know, who are the, what, what were the influences, and, I, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but about in terms of your writing, like, what, do you remember like a specific person in high school or at a young age? Yes, when, particularly in high school, there was a, a, an English teacher named Olive McKee, Mrs. McKee, and she was very unusual as English teachers go because in the ratio between writing and and reading, you know, literature and so forth, she emphasized writing to a, a greater extent than anyone I've heard of in secondary school. We wrote three pieces of writing a week, most weeks, as I said somewhere when I was writing about this. Uh, uh, not every week. Some weeks had Thanksgiving in them. But uh, over... And we read the stuff aloud to the other kids, mm. and they threw spitballs at us and everything. <laughs> this is how I developed as a writer. Well, I, I've heard this, uh, not taken your class, but I, I think this is something you do with your classes. You, Absolutely. You into your, your, you know, your professor at the university. So I, uh, I follow that in my university classes and have for over 40 years. They, they have to turn in a, they're asked to turn in a structural outline of some sort with every uh, piece, including reading aloud, is part of. It. And reading aloud is is something that goes on in almost every seminar. What, what is it about that that you like? Well, the reading aloud factor is I I've I've got to hear it coming off my tongue. Uh, uh, in the course of composition, it's it's the second draft, and and I have two two people that listen to me. One is my wife, and the other is a a person here in Princeton named Gordon Gund. And um, I just want to hear that, and it, as much for for the for the hearing of it as for their comments. It's mostly for just that, and then I go back to the third draft and the fourth draft. Mm -hmm. So um, again, I, I'm also skipping ahead a little bit, but I think while we're talking about your the development of your style as a, uh, when you were young, you you have a there's a strictness. There's a you know as a I see as someone that played for Coach Carroll and played here basketball at Princeton, um, I sort of see similarities in different walks of life with certain types of people. There was a attention to detail with Coach, um, an accountability, an exactness. Um, I, I sense the same thing from you towards your students. When did that start to develop for you? Right from the beginning. I mean, I think or I hope. I, I don't know. I was working in, on Nassau Street in a in a place across the uh, across from Firestone Library, and and uh, my predecessor quit all of a sudden at Christmas time, and he was supposed to be teaching a spring semester course, and so they said, you know, the, the, would I come over and fill in, and I filled in, and I'm still filling in. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, I, I uh, well, let's go back to sort of okay, you're entering Princeton, and you know you've had a really long association with Princeton Athletics, not just only through your father, but um, your roommates with Dick Kazmaier. Um, Chuck DeVoe is a great friend of yours. Uh, you know, as a young, uh, you know, as a young person walking around campus, John Doerr, um, you know, who was an assistant to the Attorney General for Civil Rights, you know, you've, you've been like sort of closely and intimately related for a long time. But while you were at Princeton, walk me through your association with athletics. Well, I, I was, believe it or not, a basketball player in high school, Deerfield and so on, and I, I was on the freshman basketball squad. I wasn't a starter, and um, it was there that Kazmaier and DeVoe were one year ahead of me in, in school, and when, when, the, when the first team freshmen were scrimmaging the first team varsity, this was the age of freshman basketball. Incidentally, I've people forgotten that, that people used to play three years for varsity basketball, and, and freshman was the first year. Bill Bradley played freshman basketball. And um, anyway, Kazmaier, for example, was a varsity player 
And when somebody else was scrimmaging, he and I would be sitting next to each other watching, waiting a turn to go in. And that's how I got to know him, and we became roommates eventually. Mm -hmm. Chuck DeVoe was another of the roommates. Mm -hmm. you, you, uh, you mentioned uh, you know, sort of freshman basketball. The coach at the time was Cappy Capon. Um, he was the varsity coach. He was the varsity Eddie coach. Donovan was the okay, uh, freshman coach. So tell me about Cappy. Well, I knew Cappy from the time I was about eight years old. Cappy was a friend of my family, and I, I, I used to play chess with Cappy when I was a little boy. And uh, before he went in the Navy, and, and after he came back from the Navy. Who would win those battles? Uh, Cappy. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he sat in the same way he sat in the gym. He, he was hunched over on a bench. There's and a just, famous picture of him kind of hunched that, over. Right, yeah. that's the way he played chess. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Well, and uh, you, you've mentioned, you know, uh, kind of the guys that were on that team. And, you know, and you've had, a, again, close associations with a number of the coaches at Princeton, with Cappy and then Coach Van Bredekoff. But while you were at Princeton, what were some of the sort of the, the things that Cappy emphasized? Uh, at on, Princeton. On a, uh, while, uh, uh, and being part of the team. Yeah, well, it was, I mean, he, what he emphasized was his offense, which was like a cat's cradle. It was a, it was a com complete weave. You went somewhere, every, everywhere. There was nothing freelance about it. And it was full of backdoor plays and so forth. And uh, uh, anyway, that was Cappy, the, the coach. I, I didn't experience much of that because of Eddie Donovan was our coach. Yeah. Uh, you're you're uh, after your freshman year. You're 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 at Princeton, and um, you know I I I read something where you were while you were a student. You were you're going up to New York City um, regularly to be on a, a quiz show, Twenty Questions. It was a panel uh, show called Twenty Questions: Animal, Vegetable, Mineral, and I started in with that as it happens. The week I started as a freshman, and four years later, when I was about to leave for uh, Cambridge, England, uh, I was finished with it. But it was it was a it was a rather big component in in the time I was in college right. because I went in either to New York either once or twice a week because it was both a radio and television program. Yeah, I thought about this, and that's why I brought it up. I felt like this was probably very influential in your time, right, because you're getting on the train and you're heading up to the city It was. It, it took a great deal of time. Yeah. And, and How did you manage your studies while you're doing that? I, I don't know. I really don't know. I, I used to run from one part of the campus to another. I was really, really <laughs> stirred up. <laughs> yeah, and In some ways, I, I regret that because I... It, it sort of uh, super energized my college years a little too much. Yeah. And so this was a radio show? And certainly I couldn't play any sport, you know. Ah, right. No, you, uh, do you remember any of the questions from the show? Oh, it, it was out? the sort of game that, that um, you know how it works, that, that Cappy Capon is the subject, but we don't know it. And but the audience knows it be, because some mysterious voice tells the audience. And and then we have 20 questions to identify whatever this subject is. Is animal, vegetable, mineral, whole animal uh, would be the first question and and so on. And so it's a parlor game. It's not really a uh, – it, it's not a quiz show in the sense of, you know, what are the dates of Genghis Khan. It, it's, <laughs> it was uh, – it, it was a – uh, it was a parlor game, and we were trying to, for example, the Empire State Building might be the subject, and you'd, you had 20 questions to f figure out what the, what the subject was. How many panelists were there? Four. Do you remember? And four and a guest. Okay. The thing, the guests were interesting. James Michener and Allie Reynolds, the Yankee pitcher, yeah. and uh, a different guest every week. Mm. And there, yeah. there was quite an Eleanor Roosevelt <laughs> and so on, lots of guests. You... Um, you know, uh, your your was your first foray into writing. You know, for the New Yorker was that? How did that get started? Oh well, I wanted to I wanted to write for the New Yorker from the time I was eighteen years old. But um, it doesn't. You know, you can't just send something in and it's published. And I, uh, for fifteen years, I guess what what uh, I sent things to the New Yorker that were rejected. And this is a kind of an important story that I tell 
students today. And my point is that you, you can't expect to, to get the thing you want right off the bat, but, but I'm completely happy in the niche that, I'm, that I've been in. But I was 33 years old when the New Yorker first published a piece of mine. Which, which piece was which that? Which was actually about playing b basketball for Cambridge University. And then after that piece, did, did you get the next what one was, the, was the, the 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 basketball Cambridge piece that, uh, was short and had no effect on my on my uh, relationship with the New Yorker. Uh, it was two years later that I wrote about Bill Bradley, right. and, and that changed my life. I, I, yeah, was, uh, before we go into that, I, uh, let's, let's talk about the first piece. What was, it, uh, what was the basketball like in, at Cambridge? Well, the, th the thing was that it was, um, first of all, the basketballs weren't much to write home about, so I wrote home and, and asked for basketballs, and Princeton sent over two or three basketballs, and, and we played in a place called Fenner's, and uh, the... Uh, we were we were very international. We, I mean, we had one or two Americans, three Americans, and we had people from Wales, Trinidad and Tobago, uh, Australia, and we traveled all over the English Midlands playing different universities. And this this was a, it was a lovely experience. Mm. Then we got in the national tournament, and were put out by the U.S. Navy from uh, Grosvenor Square. What, what uh, how would you describe yourself as a player? Maybe before you answer that, you know, I asked Coach Carrill how he would describe you as a player. Don't, <laughs> Coach Carrill, we were totally alone in Jadwin Gym one time. This is this is adult years. This is, we're the same age and everything, and I I d dribbled up the court and threw a hook shot from mid court, which happened to go into the basket. And Carrill looks at me. Oh, he, he was sitting on a bench over there, and he said, you suck. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what's the matter? And he said, you were, you, you, watched the, you were looking at the ball now and again when you were coming up the court. And he was dead right, you know. He didn't care whether the ball went in the basket or not. Yeah. And so anyway, anything he says about me as a basketball player is probably right, but it wouldn't be complimentary. That's <laughs> true. It's very true, and I guess his uh, his level of truth telling knows no bounds. You know, he, uh, he I got the same thing. Yeah, well, he he was he. We played at lunchtime in in years gone by, way way gone by now. But uh, Pete would uh, at I, I guarded Pete, and it's lunchtime, and Pete's playing, and he's playing basketball in Dillon, and he's smoking a cigar. <laughs> And and I'm I'm guarding him. He doesn't move. I mean, this is so flattering. He didn't move at all. <laughs> he just stood there and he fed the ball to people. And he's looking around and smoking the cigar. And it was a rather static thing. I didn't get much exercise because Pete never. I was guarding him. He never moved. And uh, anyway, I the, guess he didn't want the cigar to go out. No, but I played tennis with with Pete in the summertime. And uh, he was tricky, left-handed. He was left-handed, and the thing is, he was a he was a tennis player. I played on my high school tennis team and so forth. And Pete, Pete was better than I was by like twenty percent or twenty-five percent. He won more than he lost to me, a, a, a significant amount more. But, and he's playing with a cigar in his mouth, with uh, playing with me. And when the cigar came out of his mouth and was put down on the court by the net, I knew I was doing okay. <laughs> That's how I knew that, that I was sort of on that day. Yep. And then we go to the Acme Market because he had to shop for something. Where was the Acme Market? The Acme Market was in Princeton Junction, and he lived this – is, this is later on. I'm condensing some stories. Mm -hmm. but, but I remember going to this Acme Market with him, and he, he's going in to buy groceries, and I went in with him. So he, t he takes his lighted cigar, and, which he couldn't take into the Acme, and he put the lighted cigar under the windshield wiper of his car, and then we went in <laughs> When he came back out, his cigar was still there. Something tells me that wasn't the first this time. This is our. This is Pete. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
you, you know, you're talking about coach, which I, you know, I think we could probably talk about coach for the whole time. But you know, let's go back quickly just to, to you know, the the story you wrote about Bill Bradley, and I, I, I guess the best way for me to introduce this, yeah, I got a co- I'm 1994. I'm graduating from high school. I get a copy of from my high school coach, who um, is now an educator and. Um, works at Miami of Ohio. His name's Tom Petter. He's a very important person in my life, and he actually married my wife and I. Um, he writes, he, he gave me a copy of A Sense of Where You Are, and he wrote, writes on it, Mitch, anyone headed for Princeton to study and play basketball ought to read McPhee. This is the first time I've ever heard of you, uh, unfortunately. You may find um, his writing inviting. His other works are worth a look, too. And um, yeah, I read the book before I showed up on campus, and then, um, and I reread it recently. And I was looking at the introduction, and and you describe, uh, you you call you say incentive in the very beginning, you, and you describe a phone call from your father who um, didn't show a whole lot of emotion while he was watching sports, and he says, you know, listen, I want you to come down, and that you need to come watch this this young man play. I've never seen anybody like him at Princeton, and he might be one of the best there ever is. And you say, what's his name? And he says. What, what is that? Why does that matter? <laughs> you wouldn't tell me. Yeah. So g- describe the first time you sort of got introduced to Bill, because you've got you've had a very you've been very linked to him for a long time. Oh yes, He's, uh, to last week we were together for his birthday. The um, my father, first of all, was a he was a really good basketball player, and, and he came from Ohio. He played at Oberlin, and. Uh, so he says that, and I came down. I was living in, in New York at the time, and I, I came down and went to this freshman basketball game with him, and sat there because he wouldn't tell me which player I was supposed to notice. But that was uh, it was difficult not to because Bill Bill was such a smooth uh, performer, and he could see everything that was going on. He has court senses, incredible, and and his his. What, he's an outstanding shooter. He did he did everything, and you could see this right away. But I didn't know. Of course, that that was the first time I ever saw Bill. I didn't get to know him until I, I, wrote about him uh, four years later, or three years later. And so you were you started. So you've you've got the first sort of article with the New Yorker, and then now you're starting this profile for, with Bill. How did that? So, you know. This turns into to a, a book that's, you know, for those of us that read it, it's like a really powerful book. It's a very important basketball book. I mean, I think one of the top five basketball books out there. And it was my first book. For, yeah. First. So, so describe how you, and, and really kind of, you know, this, this genre, creative nonfiction, which I would be curious what you think of that, but um, that term. But, you know, observing Bill, getting to kind of dive in with him, and then him, sort of the access that he gave you, what was that like? It was, you mean with Bill when yeah, we were doing Bill, it? Well, yeah. well I, and what I was mean, the he was so that? good. I, well, I had watched him as a sophomore playing with the varsity, of course, and playing. So you were hooked. You Saint were Joe's. So I was watching. totally hooked and we'd watched him. I had since moved with my family uh, back to Princeton, and uh, I watched all the basketball games. And so, and I was working at Time Magazine and and failing to get connected with the New Yorker, except in that one little piece about Cambridge and. Uh, I, I decided I'd like to write about Bill, and I proposed a to the New Yorker, where, with whom I was in dialogue about what I might try to write for them, uh, the uh, thing about Bill Bradley and so forth. And they said no; they were not interested at all. They they had just done a basketball player, just done. And I looked this up. It was Bob Cousy five years earlier. And um, so, but I was so caught up with Bill that I, with 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 I didn't know Bill at all at this point. But I sat down and wrote a five thousand word letter to the New Yorker, telling them why I was going to write about Bradley for somebody, and uh, this is why. And they wrote back and said, "Would they be interested in seeing this as it happened?" And that's how it got started. And then I spent the summer uh, going to Crystal City, Missouri. And this is the summer of '64. Summer of '64, and I went out to Crystal City and hung around with with Bill at at his home, and then also 
he came here to work on his senior thesis in advance because he was going to be in the Olympics in Tokyo mm. in the fall. And so he was he was around Princeton, and I would go over with him to Dillon. And, no, you know, it's not air conditioning and everything. It was just boiling hot. And, uh, and I would... Did you I, travel back and forth together from Missouri? No, no. But when he came here, we, I went to Dillon with him and... Uh, uh, you know, just stood on the court and and where he was practicing, fed him fed him shots as he went around the the you know he'd, he'd go around and make jump shots from fifteen different points and and stuff like stuff like that and uh, yeah, anyway, very exact so routine. We, we, his exact routines. We spent so anyway, we spent all that um, that the, that's the time that went into the so-called research for that book. I imagine at the time he was quite popular uh, and. No, he was. He was very popular, and and he he was more popular when, when uh, his senior season had happened, and and that's a story I could tell you about his thesis. But yeah, well, I'd like to hear that. Also, just thinking about this is amazing. The sort of you know omniscient of you to you know. Do you ever go back and think like you know that summer I went there and I started to do sort of lay the groundwork for the story that you know, and then, and then Bill has really like that team hasn't like kind of a magical year. They did. I mean, who knew they were going to the Final Four? I was just interested in writing about this basketball player. And the, the piece was published in, in The New Yorker in January of 65. Of, uh, and obviously they had the bulk of their basketball season in front of them. And they ended up in, in Portland in the Final Four, and that was just fortuitous. Hmm. <laughs> did you help Bill with his thesis? No. He... Uh, uh, the the thing about his thesis, his thesis was on Harry Truman's second senatorial campaign, and um, by the time that that he came back from Portland in the Final Four, he had X weeks to finish this thesis, and he was under big pressure, and he was also under huge pressure from from every, because he's this all-American basketball player, Final Four, et cetera, et cetera, and he, he didn't have, everywhere he went, he ran into somebody who was interrupting me. I was off, with, and my whole family was away. I was and in Florida doing research on another piece, and Bill lived in our house for that time, hid in our house, and he wrote, his, he wrote a, a lot of his thesis out there, and on on my writing table and there was a little rug under the table and he he got so nervous writing his thesis that he would squ run his run his feet back and forth you know as if he were swimming or something and he completely destroyed that rug <laughs> there was nothing left of it it was shredded anyway he got his thesis done and he he got honors did you um as he's sort of going through that, you know, I mean, we, we all kind of know that, you know, Bill then goes to, you know, Oxford and comes comes back. He's a Nick. Um, you know, how did you stay in touch with him over the years? Well, I mean, in that year, uh, uh, 64 and 65, we, 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 I'm 12 years older than he is. So sometimes people will ask me about, you know, my college friend, Bill. That we were not, we were. I'm 12 years older than he is, and uh, but when he, by the time he went to Oxford, uh, he he was a he was a pretty close friend, and he's just become closer and closer across time until last week and <laughs> his birthday, mm -hmm. and uh, we stayed in touch while he was at Oxford, and and an interesting thing is that w w when he was over there, and and he he's. Uh, he wrote to me and he wanted me to go to Trenton and get a collection of books that had to do with state legislative history. And it was these little little red books. I don't know the name of it, but there, were, there might have been as many as 30 of them, 24 or 30 of these little books that told everything the legislature had done. And, uh, and, and I, I went and picked up all these books and, and shipped them to Oxford. You could see what he was thinking. Uh, wow. at, at that at that time, and he was playing basketball for Simenthal too, as well as Oxford. Hmm. 
sort of laying the groundwork. Well, he went to Italy to play <laughs> to play basketball with this Italian uh, meat packer. <laughs> I don't think it, I've never heard that story. You haven't? Well, no. let, let me roll on with with that because he 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 played for this Simenthal thing when when he was over there. All right. So years later, in the in the early seventies. Bill now married to a German woman, Ernestine, and her family lives in Ingolstadt in Bavaria, and Germany got into the World Cup against Italy, and this, and, and the, the, the uh, Misselbecks, Ernestine's family, wanted to go see the World Cup, Italy versus Germany. And Bill asked Simenthal to help him get tickets for the Misselbecks. And Simenthal said, okay, but come over here and play a couple of games for us and you'll get the tickets. <laughs> Bill was a Nick. He was, on, he was playing in a year when they won the NBA championship or whatever it was, and he went to Italy to <laughs> play two basketball games so, that, so his in-laws could go to the soccer game. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> what, did, did you get a chance to see him play with the Knicks quite a bit? Yeah, uh, yes, we uh, would go in. I went in often and sat in his courtside seats mm. and with all these people. It was it was it was an interesting era. Do you you um, want to go back to um, you know finishing the book? And so you've you know you've you've got the the piece that it becomes kind of maybe the second or third chapter of of the book, a sense of where you are. Um, well, this is your first book, so. What what was that process like for you? Well, to my utter amazement, I mean, I, I would say when the piece was published, uh, I had left Time magazine the end of 64 on the strength of that in order to become a staff writer at The New Yorker. and But this is the first two weeks of, my, of that change. And uh, um, at, at about the same time, a... Uh, uh, pub, uh, two or three publishers, uh, w when the thing was published in the New Yorker, decided it would make a good book. I mean, th and this just was out of the blue. I didn't know at all. And uh, one of those publishers was Farris Strauss and Giroux, and they published the book, and they published every book of mine to yeah, this, that's to this day, yeah. all, all the way through. But it this came out of nowhere. And so, in other words, I was... I, a magazine writer who sort of fell into book publishing mm -hmm. in this manner. But this was January 65, and Princeton is playing basketball, and I followed the team through the season and to my, in order to have more material to, to make this 17,000-word profile into a, into a book was nonetheless still short. And, uh, and they went on and on to the final four, and that was just... just uh, a, a kind of a amazing development. Yeah. Did this did this sort of guide you as you know you've written over twenty five you know more, more than you know several uh, articles in the New Yorker. You've written several books, several dozens of books. Um, you know, and, and I want to ask you at some point here about how you choose your subjects. But did you did this sort of start to solidify what you want, how you wanted to write? Or did you see this as a being like this was uh, this you know, uh, the style. Yeah, well, remember, I'd been writing professionally for uh, 12 years or whatever. So when, when I came back from Europe and started writing, uh, actually, the, the first thing I did was write plays for live plays for television mm -hmm. for a year. And but I uh, found out I didn't really want to do that. And what kind of plays? Well, in those days, it's, it's, it's a no longer exists, but they had, uh, they were dramatic plays of 50 minutes and they were gone. They weren't series. There were no series. And they were, they were performed live. There were four or five of them, Philco Television Playhouse, Studio One, Robert Montgomery Presents and so on. And I wrote for Robert Montgomery Presents and I wrote, I wrote, uh, Three plays and two were produced on NBC, and but uh, there were so many cooks making this stew that I, <laughs> I prefer to 
you know, to make the whole thing on my own. Mm -hmm. But you learn that. A young writer learns that. And then, and then I couldn't get connected with The New Yorker, which I was constantly trying to do, sending them things that were rejected. And I got a job writing at Time magazine, and I, I was there seven years, and mostly as the show business editor. <laughs> and so anyway, in other words, when, when, it, when 1964 came and I t decided I was going to try this profile for The New Yorker, I had a lot of experience behind me at that point. And I mean, and this is, I think, such an important story for these kids in Princeton now, and in, or young writers anywhere, is that that writers grow slowly. There are examples of people that, like John Updike, who who uh, score large and early, but writers grow slowly, and a writer, a writer who really wants to do it should persist through through this stuff. I mean, I think the fact that I ended up uh, very happy in what I was doing uh, ought to encourage them, not discourage them. It took me until I was 33 years old. Yeah. yeah. Well, how did, so I guess moving on from a sense of where you are, how did, you know, you've written about so, such a wide breadth of subjects. Um, you know, from the psychology of a nuclear engineer to oranges to you know, headmasters to Arthur Ashe and, and the book Levels of the Game, Farmer's Markets, uh, and then there's a series of books, you know, that really deal, you know, uh, w freight transportation, geography. How do you choose your subjects? And, uh, and that's a broad question, but... Um, how do, how do you sort of zero in on what you what interests well, you? Well, one, I want I want to write, you know. So write what, and and um, the ideas are a dime a dozen. And the thing is that you re, you react to ideas that appeal to you. Why do they appeal? Because in my case, I I mean, it, it's something I was interested in when I was in college or before. I, I once checked this off. Why do I write about tennis and basketball uh, but not, you know, rugby or something and, and or football? And it said I played on my high school tennis team, my high school basketball team. These these things are, are rooted in, in there. I, I spent my whole youth in the summertime on, in a canoe tripping camp and... Uh, uh, at least twenty percent of my work relates to the outdoors and is out. You know, it. A writer should write what you uh, really want to write, rather than what you don't market research your pieces, and you shouldn't. And and uh, figure out what the public wants or something like that, because it's not going to work out probably. Whereas, if you. you you have to have enough passion for the subject to carry you through all the, all the discouragement and rough times as you're developing the piece. You know, the first draft is always terrible, and you've got to cope with that. And might, the first draft might take two years, of, of, as it did in uh, one thing of mine, and uh, that's a long, miserable time. But you wouldn't want to be working on something you weren't interested in. Yeah. Have you had... A consistent editor or somebody, you know, you mentioned your wife and Gordon Gunn. Gunn Gordon Gunn, yeah. Gordon Gunn, uh, and I, I, I should know this, but he sounds very familiar. Is he, um, is he sports related in any way? He signed LeBron James. Okay, so this is the, this is the form. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's embarrassing. He's the the. No, but he was uh, he, he was the owner of the Cavs, and but and, but and, he, and an alum. He uh, he's a Harvard alum. Harvard alum. Okay. He he was a uh, uh, yeah. He went to uh, Harvard. He was an ice hockey player up there. Okay. Does he still live in town? He lives in Princeton. Okay. Great. And what what is it about their counsel that that helps you? One thing about Gordon is that that he's totally blind. Yeah. And uh, he wasn't when I mean he flew an airplane. He was an ice hockey player and so on and so forth. And he developed. I think it was. Uh, macular degeneration when uh, or retinosis, but I think it was macular degeneration when he was in his 30s, and that's when he lost his sight. And his number one activity today is a, is a, is his foundation fighting blindness, mm -hmm. which is here in Princeton, and he and his wife Luli uh, run this thing, yeah. ra raise money for research in 
in ophthalmology. Mm. What What is it about um, the, the his counsel and your wife's counsel that well, that, uh, that that appeals to you and that works for you? He is an, an incredible listener. As as senses develop in repl- you know replacing a, a something you lost, and and so his sense of he he's way ahead. You can hear him. <laughs> Uh, when when I'm building up towards something in a piece of writing, I can I can just sort of hear his reactions because he'll he'll see it coming. He, he doesn't miss a thing, and Yolanda doesn't either. But but as I said before, it's it's uh, also I'm learning just by listening because I want the words to sound a certain way. Mm-hmm. You you described at one point uh, in a piece that you wrote for the New Yorker about your interviewing style, and I thought you said a couple things that were really interesting that that appealed to me as a as a teacher, as a coach. Um, a long pauses. Sometimes you'll. Um, I think you use the word. Sometimes you um, uh, act like you don't understand, and to get the person to. True. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And well, um, did that develop over time? Yes. I mean, that's a, just uh, the long experience interviewing. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been, with a, as a nonfiction writer, I've been interviewing people from the get-go. And uh, obviously there was a learning curve, but, but uh, I must have learned something. But one thing is just to <laughs> not do anything. If your pencil isn't moving over your notebook, that tends to make, <laughs> make the person you're talking to a little nervous. <laughs> Have people described you as you make people feel comfortable? Because you get so much out of your subjects. Mostly, it's it's that I don't go away, and and you know, I mean, I have huge respect for daily journalists who 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 have to go out, get material, go back, write it that very day, and so on. But I'm not in that category. I don't have to write it that day, and I can I went with with subject after subject. I would sort of go there. And then be there the next day, and the next week, and the next month, and you get to know them, and gradually you just pick up a lot of things that way that wouldn't happen in one or two days. Mm-hmm. There's a, uh, you know, what, what comes out in your writing sometimes is that, you know that the subjects when you're very interested in them that you sort of pick up that there's a self-reliance, there's a toughness in that person, uh, there's a you wrote a story about a cook. It was a short story, uh, a restaurant, mm-hmm. sort of somewhere that you don't name where it is, and you use sort of different names. But um, of course, as I'm reading it, I'm I'm getting hungry. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's del- it sounds delicious. But you describe that like, these are the five best meals I've ever had, and they're from the same restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was really like I could. It felt like you you developed a very strong connection to this to this chef, to this guy. And, yes, uh, and, and admiration. That that's true. That's absolutely true, and I, I mean, I didn't. Ju- I had known him quite a while before I uh, decided to try to write about him and got his approval of doing that. Yeah. What? Um, you're, you're like one. There was an article in the Guardian, and uh, this might embarrass you, but you're described as a passionate fisherman, physically tough, uncomplaining, good-natured, and very, very scared of bears. Uh, did Pete Carrill write that? <laughs> he did not. He did not. Uh, he did not. But I, I, I love that. I love that. Um, I, I think that that captures you. Would you agree? Where was it from? The Guardian. Yeah, the Guardian. Yeah. yeah, I was trying to think when. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Part of it, I suppose. I mean, I'm certainly passionate about the things I write about because I just, as I said earlier, I think that if you if you're not, you you may not have the stamina to get through it. Yeah. What what you mentioned, uh, you know, young writers today and, and you know, you're, you've been a professor at Princeton for over 40 years um, teaching writing classes. And um, many of your students talk about the notes that you've sort of made in the margins. They keep their notes. But what, what do you see? What, what are the trends that you're seeing with, the, you know, students today in terms of in your the, in your seminar? Well, first of all. Uh, people often ask whether you know they think there's a, an erosion, a deterioration of the. I don't see that at all. Remember, I, I don't have a cross section of, of of the whole university or anything. I, it, it's a course in which maybe say 60 or 70 people apply, and I choose 16. 
And how do they? How do the students apply? They they uh, submit a piece of writing, any piece of writing they want to choose that they've done since they came to Princeton, and um, they write a letter telling me what they hope to get out of the course. And but from the one or the other, I get clues and so forth, and then I end up with a table, a seminar table surrounded by 16 people and me. Mm-hmm. And uh, how, how many basketball players do you have? 18? 15. 15. Mm-hmm. Well, see, it's very comparable to dealing with a, a certain group of that size and so forth. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are 16 undergraduates. They're, nowadays, they're all sophomores. I've, I've been, for about 15 years, I've been teaching 100% sophomores just because I think it's a very good year to do that. Before that, it was everything from uh, including grad students. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I had about eight freshmen, and one of them was uh, one of them who, I mean, eight freshmen over time that I actually chose out of, you know, who knows how many. But, but one of them, <laughs> one year, Matt Henchon. He comes along, and he, as a freshman, he applied to my class. Matt would play basketball in the cl- class of 91. He, he, this, right, but this was, a, this was 87 or something. He's a freshman, whatever that was. And I called up, I mean, and, and after this whole process with, with 60 or 70 or even more applicants, uh, I, I picked up the phone and called Pete Carrill. And I said, Pete, one of your basketball players has applied to my class and I want to take him. But I'm not taking him if he has to go down and, and to, the, to the gym and practice basketball and miss part of the class ever. And he, Pete says, what's his name? What's his name? And I said, Henshine. And Pete says, he can do it. He can do it. He said, what's, and Pete said, and what's more, if that kid ever misses one minute of your class to come down here and play, he will never play another minute for Princeton. Boom. <laughs> That's a really terrific story about Pete Carrell. I love that story. I love that, too. And you, and you ended up probably reconnecting with Matt later because Matt was uh, you know, part of uh, Senator Bradley's campaign. Matt was, Matt was very much part. Um, Bill and Matt are really close. Matt worked for Bill for the whole time. He was in, it was in 2000 and so forth. Matt is, Matt is a lawyer in Boston now. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it was. I'm I'm much in touch with Matt to the, yeah. this day. What what makes you, you've had a lot of uh, famous journalists that you still stay in touch with. What what makes a great writer? I don't. I mean, n- nothing that you could articulate in a, in a few words. It's it's uh, uh, interest, I guess. I mean, it's the the fact that interest and passion and just being wanting to do it uh, uh, sort of above all else I, I think something like that but they vary I mean, and, and uh, certainly uh, all these students I see are not there's not there's not a common stamp in yeah. to them no, and I, I, if somebody asked me the same question about how I identify a good basketball player I would have uh, you know no specific way of saying it but I, I do think that there's a love for the game that um, Sort of transcends, you know, um, you know, a lot of things. We have a current senior is coming back who really wasn't recruited that heavily, um, but he's his name's Henry Caruso, and he's just, you know, I, I often say if you open Henry up, his heart's just a little bit bigger than everyone else's. That's great. And, I uh, liked watching him play. Yeah, he, yeah he's, he's yeah. He, I call he's a whirling dervish. Yeah, that's, that's, that's lovely. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. And but is there is there something in particular with uh, your relationship with your students that that you you like the, the most, um, or or I just I it's it's just get, getting that class together and and uh, I, I mean it, it it's a tonic situation for me I I think it keeps me going I think it's a I, I really don't want to give it up because it I get so much sort of back from them and from from their relationships with one another and their and their relationship with me and it, with the the core of the course is private conferences to, uh, they've done a piece of writing and I'm pretending to be the 
the, the student's editor, and the student comes up in, into my office, and we talk a comma at a time through the piece. And you really get to know the kids that way, and and I I just treasure that. I don't want to. Uh, I think it, you know, I think it uh, is like a tub full of geritol for me. <laughs> <laughs> I. I uh, someone, one of your former students, uh, said that in one of the notes you wrote in the side of his his or her paper was, "Do you get paid by the comma?" <laughs> Who was that? Uh, I can't remember. Hessler uh, Hessler has trotted out things he kept in uh, from the margins. Pete Pete Hessler is one of the. He was he's he's a New Yorker writer. He's as good a nonfiction writer as exists in the world, and. Uh, He's been in Egypt and first in China, and now he's going back to China after another year. And, and uh, anyway, I have been in places where he introduced me, and he brings out the marginalia from from papers, I, uh, his papers when he was in college. Wow. Do, do, what, what is it about um, – uh, so you're, you're an avid cyclist, right? You stay very active. That's how I get exercise. I, I, I used to run and uh, – uh, I developed Achilles tendonitis, and and doctor said uh, buy a bicycle because you. And so I've been riding a bike about uh, fifteen or sixteen miles every every other day ever since. Mm-hmm. And that was in 1988, so it's a long time. Yeah, yeah. And you and you uh, ride fairly regularly with Jerry Price. I ride with Jerry Price, with Bryce Chase, who's a volunteer in the lacrosse mm-hmm. program, and. Uh, and others, Jim Merritt, who used to be the editor of the Alumni Weekly. Anybody around here who's interested, I've written with, with students too. I had a, a student once who was going to run in the Boston Marathon with her mother, and and I took her out to a set of hills outside here where where she could do hill training while while I rode around on a bicycle. She she could run up the hill. Anyway, yeah. What what uh, getting back to Bradley's uh, campaign? What what is it about uh, the, the in the primaries? I mean, you know, so we're in an election cycle right now. We're we're taping this in the middle of August. So, um, you know, you probably remember that time very vividly. What, um, you know, what what was it that you take your takeaways from that campaign? Bradley running for the Democrat nomination. Yeah, well, I, I mean, how it, it I, I first of all wasn't, except as a supporter, I wasn't, uh, you know, involved in any way. And I, I, I did put him and Matt Henshaw together who traveled with him everywhere. And uh, uh, I just was pulling for him, that's all. It, it, you know, it really didn't have much of a, you know, on hands-on relationship with it at all. Mm. And it was a, it was a tough go at the end. Yeah. What did when you were following the there's a there was a great special not too long ago on ESPN about uh, the when the garden was Eden. It's the, the first championship Knicks team, um, you know, and and Bill and his teammates they all talk about that team and how close of a team that they were. What what is it about teams that you appreciate? Like that when you watch basketball, obviously you've played, but the fact that they win. Five people win the game and one doesn't. Mm-hmm. In 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 general, I mean that's that's what I think. And what and if, if five people get together, they're going to do better than one will. And so you watch the whole team. You watch. It's it's this year's NBA championship was really uh, very interesting because I thought I thought at one point that 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 Cleveland was going to lean too hard on on LeBron. And but but in the end, I don't think I think that the team won. Kyrie Irving shot, you know, thing. And but but still, the uh, um, I mean, I, I think in practical terms, that a, a team is going to win and an individual isn't. And I think that that's you know, if if I were to define Princeton basketball generally for you know. Um, you know, a student athlete thinking about coming to Princeton or to anyone else, I, I think, it's like, you know, we, we try to play as a team. We try to play together. Uh, and um, to, uh, you watch a lot of Princeton basketball? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's been a big part of what we've been trying to teach forever is, you know, you get high school kids to come in and, um, I, and, and to slow down and re- understand that what you're doing is making the team better. 
and how to do that. Because all these guys come in, they're, they're generally some of the best players on their team. They've got sure. to navigate the school and the court at the same time. And, um, you know, it, it does, uh, you, you mentioned it takes a little while for the maturation of a writer. It's the same thing on a basketball court. Uh, you know, maybe not as hard, but it's, it really takes, you know, uh, a focus on how do, what are you doing to make the other guy better? I think it's a good analogy. I think it's right. Yeah. Um, any um, any other Coach Carroll stories you want to share? No, oh, there's 10,000 of, <laughs> of them. I was thinking a few minutes ago about um, basketball players that, that had been in my class, like Matt Henshon, and another one was Rick Stengel. And Stengel was played on the team. Pete had a team that won the, won the uh, 1975, NIT. Yeah. And Stengel's class was 78, maybe. I forget. But anyway, he was, he was on this team. And he uh, became managing editor of Time magazine uh, back in college, uh, or back at Princeton, when, when he was a student. And he's in my class. And in those days, I used to have the visitor come to the class and be interviewed by the 16 kids. And then the writing assignment that week was, was to do a, write a little profile of the visitor. So Stengel, is, Stengel came from White Plains, and he's a sophomore, whatever he was. And he, he's in the seminar room, and Bill Bradley walks in as the visitor to be interviewed for three hours. And Stengel, Stengel went out of his mind. He turned in, a, he's supposed to turn in about a thousand words, four or five pages, 1,200 words or something. He, he, he must have turned in 25,000 words. I never saw so much. It was like a hamper full of paper that, that uh, in those days it was real paper that they turned pieces in on. And uh, I still kid him about it. He, he's an undersecretary of... Uh, in the State Department now. He spoke uh, a couple years ago at the PVC banquet, which is the all-athletic yeah. banquet, um, right. a couple years ago. And, and you, you actually spoke at that I as well. I did, yeah. And, um, you know, it was uh, the Marvin Bressler Award, which is essentially the, you know, Marvin was a really big part of um, my life here at Princeton. And, you know, he was a mentor to a lot of people. And um, I really enjoyed your words that day. You, do you remember what you talked about? Well, I talked about my nephew in part. yes. Uh, Marvin got him through college. I mean, he <laughs> a number of us. <laughs> yeah, Marvin, Marvin, but but you know, and 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 into his career. Uh, Charles, Charles is no longer alive. He died of ALS, but he uh, he was um, he, he did his thesis on dreams, and M Marvin led him through all of that. And he did he did his, his he not on, not only that, but he later gets on into a radio show about dreams and when he got sick and he was sick for a long time and this was uh, of course some years after he graduated from Princeton Marvin Bressler proposed that the two of them write a book together and Charles had that you know project in in his mind was, this, this was a gift from Marvin saying let's do this and of course, of course it never happened but Marvin was something great he was yeah and he was the—he's the source of this uh, program that Gary Walters, athletic director, created with uh, the faculty, faculty fellows. fellows. I mean, Marvin was the prototype. Yeah. I, I mean, and, and Gary had played basketball, and there's Marvin, Pete's friend, and so in the, in Marvin's image, uh, the 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 38 varsity sports now have each have at least two faculty yeah. fellows. And are, who are you a fellow for? Lacrosse. Lacrosse, yeah. I played lacrosse at Deerfield. Yeah. Now, Marvin coined a phrase that uh, sticks with me that, uh, you know, sort of captured up, I thought, and captured Coach Carroll very, very nicely. It was, he's called it retroactive sanctification, very much of a Marvin term, which means <laughs> sure is after Marvin. you graduate, yeah. you're uh, not you were a great player, but while you're playing, yeah. not so good. <laughs> or as you said, you suck. Yeah, right. That's what he said. <laughs> That, that's wonderful. How about any other coach stories? Coach Carrill. Coach Carrill. Um, one of my favorites is that Jadwin Jim was being built in the 1960s, and uh, the 
it, it was it started out it's a huge hole in the ground and then and, and Pete and I used to play tennis a lot then and, and I mean, the gym had been the gym was a lot of girders and uh, it, it, it it still was just steel sticking up in the air at, at the point where I'm speaking. And I, I called uh, him at home, and he wasn't there. And Dilly, his wife, said, uh, I said, where is he? And she said, he's at the gym. And I said, what gym? He said, the, the new gym. Really? Well, he goes down there every night, she says. And he's there every evening. And this is a, it's a hole in the ground with some girders in it, and he's there every evening. And she said, if he's out of town, he sends one of us. And <laughs> so I couldn't believe this. And so I went, to, I went to the liquor store, and I bought two 16-ounce cans of beer. And uh, then I drove down to, to what is now this big parking lot outside, and, uh, and I walked over. And there was a little retaining wall which, where, the, where the southwest corner of Caldwell Fieldhouse is now. And there was this re little retaining wall no longer there. And he's sitting on it. And I, I walked over and I sat down and didn't say a word. I said, I'm not going to speak until this guy speaks. And, so, and I put the two beers <laughs> between us and he picks up this beer and he opened it. But he said nothing. And then after several minutes, he said... Can you imagine putting a bad basketball team in there? Wow. He's a mystic. Yeah. I don't care what he says about me. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's, you're, you're right about that. Um, how about uh, Coach Van Bredekoff? Van Bredekoff, first of all, when I was a little boy, Van Bredekoff played basketball here. And, and I remember, you know, him in the old university gym and everything. Uh, uh, I didn't get to know him the way I did a couple of the others when I was a child. But uh, he's back here as coach, and, and uh, I was going to write about Bill Bradley, and I got Van Bredekoff to watch a Princeton film with me. And at your house? At my house, and Princeton had won this basketball game on the film but it was going and butch came out to my house and it was a it was a boiling hot july day and we didn't have air conditioning then and uh we get in the the room with um, the film going on and princeton had won this game and this was amazing what he did he's lying on the floor in all this heat smoking a cigar and watching the basketball game, and then he got excited, and he started to yell at his players. This is a July in my house. He's yelling at his players on the film. He's he's he once in in the actual gym. He once kicked the bench, and a splinter came off it that went up in the eighth row. And uh, so anyway, he got he got all excited like that, and it was a reproduction of. What happens in the, in the in the actual action of a game? It, it really just amazed me, and then I've noticed it in athletes since. I've noticed it a lot at Wimbledon in the way that in the way the players talk to themselves, and which was different. But it, but it's uh, anyway. Th this experience with VBK was it, it is etched in my memory for that reason. Mm -hmm. uh, special. I mean, I you know I think it. Um you know, that, that says a lot about a, a coach that you can watch a game and it sort of comes alive, right? Like yeah. talking to the guys, Absolutely. the caring that needs to go into it. Okay, Cappy with his Cappy had the, the his weave and his completely constructed and structured basketball game. Everybody moving to where he's supposed to move to, and and uh, as the ball is handed off from one guy to another, Van Bredikov says. Um, you just come off guys. That's what you do. You come off guys. Right. That, that was his description of the game. <laughs> you, uh, I, I want to, and I, I could talk about everything, but I'll, let me ask you about one book in particular because you mentioned tennis. You wrote a book called Levels of the Game, and it was about the, the amateur U.S. Open with Arthur Ashe. Describe Ashe at that time in his life. 
it was the first U.S. Open. In other words, amateur, amateurs and pros could play together. Yeah. And uh, in 1960— This would have been one of your first few bucks. Yes, it was. It was one of the first five or first three or four or whatever. And, and it was—I've um, forgotten how I—oh, I know. The, yes, I, I wrote a— well, before I go into all that, what what was your question? Well, my about question it? was about uh, you know about Arthur Ashe in particular. Mm. Um, I've read a great deal about and have a lot of admiration for, but that that this was a story of him playing. A, and I'm forgetting the name of the jerk. Clark Grabner. Clark Grabner. Yeah, and um, and th this struck me. You you're. you're a, the level of detail and how you describe you're sort of in the moment with you as you're writing, which it, it, but it's it's descript it's very descriptive of the, the 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 two players juxtaposed against each other and how they played the very different styles, but also you, the great observation. But the game moves very fast, you know, in, in general. But um, you know, you're this was at Old Flushing Meadows, correct? Yeah, Forest Hills. Forest Hills, excuse me, which is there. Yeah, in, in, yeah, right. Um, my question was about Ash, about what what he was like at that time of his life. Oh, he he was. Um I remember him so fondly. He was really, I mean, well, for one thing, he he sort of, uh, he cooperated. He drew me into, with, with the U.S. Davis Cup team because that happened to be going on at the time. Um, but it started, I mean, I wanted to write a uh, double profile. I'd had this concept. I've been writing about individuals one after another for a long time, and I, He's getting a little jaded, and I thought two people at the same time, and I, I would be an interesting thing to do. And I hunted around for who it would be, a dancer and a choreographer, a, a baseball manager and a pitcher, on and on. And then I was watching on, on CBS uh, the semifinal match in the first U.S. Open, and there were two guys there, and one of them was black, one was white. They were both Americans, and they, and they uh, would have known each other since they were 11, if they were that good, uh, playing in Kalamazoo and so forth. And so I decided that that would, might make the story, and I, I got the tape from CBS. Uh, in those days, they in, in those days they kept the tape a few weeks and then erased it. I mean, it, it's not the same as today. And uh, when I called CBS and he said the guy said you didn't call a minute too soon um, because we we're going to erase that tape this afternoon. And I needed that the tape the 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 CBS broadcast was my basic thing, and I had it in a 16 millimeter film made by CBS off a, a, a monitor. And uh, and I took it around. I took it to Grabner's home in Ohio, and I took it to Ash and his father, and watched it in Richmond. And I took it with me to Puerto Rico because it happened that the U.S. Davis Cup team was playing a tie, so-called, with India down there. They were going to, and they went there two weeks early to get ready and get a, get acclimated to the humidity and all that. And I went there with them, and I was the only journalist. And I, and I was much younger. We played football in the in 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 two feet of water and the the beach, you know. And we played some kind of tackle football. And we did all sorts of things. Got to know each other. And um, anyway, Arthur really drew me into that group. Yeah. He, he's uh, you, know, you, just, you describe him very perfectly, but he, you know, is an excellent tennis player, but uh, like an extraordinary human being as well. He was, he was an extraordinary human being. He also was, he was a risk taker, a little bit like Phil Mickelson. He would, I mean, Arthur would hit out if uh, if he needed to, and you know, the devil take the chances or whatever. Yeah. John, I, this has been such a delight for me, and I really It's been a delight for, for me, Mitch. I, I, I thank you very much. Oh, this is a, what a pleasure. So thank you so much. You bet.